This is how I win. I'm not even supposed to be here today! Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. How can you not be romantic about baseball? Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Well, you know, for me, the action is the juice. No. No, you. You complete me. I'm the king of the world! If you don't have a good sense of humor, you're better off dead. 69, dudes! Welcome back to the Sin Arrivals podcast, folks. We are back from our big uh, Tom Cruise level Mission Impossible episode, and we are moving swiftly along with more new releases for you. We got everyone's favorite segment is coming back today, folks. Get excited because TV Corner is back. We get to talk about the newest Marvel TV show. I... From the conversations we had pre-podcast, it might be the last time we talk about one of these Marvel shows because I don't think we'll ever get Brent to watch another one of these after what has transpired. But after that, we got some new releases to talk about the highly anticipated Barbenheimer and then also the Haunted Mansion, which we got to enjoy a little bit early. But like I said, to start off the conversation, we get to firmly plant ourselves in the TV corner. And stare at the wall because we're in trouble. No, I'm just kidding. I, I mean, we'll just start it right off the bat. I thought Secret Invasion was one of the top uh, shows for the Marvel Cinematic Universe so far. I've enjoyed parts of all of them. I think there were definitely decisions made in the finale, but as a whole cohesive six-episode series where you're telling the story beginning to end, especially, I think, in rewatches when you get to watch them all in uh in a binge order just all at once this thing is going to hold up so cohesively that like i think this is going to age very well i mean uh, nick fury samuel jackson you have one of the most infamous characters throughout probably 10 movies at this point in the marvel cinematic universe we know so little about fury's personal life uh, more and and honestly, we barely know anything about his professional life either. We just know his infamy from throughout all these other movies, and we're finally getting a grounded establishment of Fury's backstory. And like, that's one of my favorite parts of the show is rounding out this character that we've come to know and love all these years with all these things that totally make sense for his character. There is character growth even in just this season because, I mean, we get to see Fury at maybe his weakest because dude's still like PTSD and from the blip. He was just gone. And so when when he came back and saw the state the earth was in, he's like, can't let that happen again. And he became obsessed. And like the only thing that could pull him out was his personal relationship to the situation that was happening with Gravik. And all these scrolls that they set up in, well, they started setting up with the Captain Marvel films and his relationship with Talos and his family. And then we learn about Gravik and how they're connected and how they have this like ongoing relationship that like started with this promise of finding a new world, uh, Fury. But 
like I like I oh, and you have Gaia, the daughter of Talos in this show, who is like a very mainstay character, played fantastically by Amelia Clark, who is just oh my god, if I can't. I, if I could have that clip of her in doing that interview saying daddy living on repeat in my brain, I would. It's so great. Man, oh, man. I mean, let's let's hear some positives for you before I just keep rambling on. And then you can get into your negatives. I want to hear positives first. I mean, my positives were simply like when the first trailer dropped, I couldn't be more excited. I, I remember saying like, oh, like I we watched uh, one of the trailers at the theater, like during one of the like right before the Guardians premiere. And. I'm just, you know, with the cast that they have between Samuel L. Jackson, Olivia Coleman, Ben Ben Middleton, Tinsley Ben Adir, and Amelia Clark. Uh, even the few we got with Wilby Saunders, uh, Somers, and Martin Freeman. Like Molders. it was a solid cast. And Don Cheadle, like very good cast. Uh um the president being Dermot Maroney. Dermot Maroney. Like Dermot McDermott. Yeah, I mean Kermit McDermott. One of those were like, okay, this has one of the best casts we've seen so far in a Marvel series. And yet each episode I feel like just uh dragged from what I wanted the execution to be. Does uh, not sound like a positive, the po- sir. The po- the positive was the cast. I got nothing else for you. I mean that's I, I've said it a hundred times. You can get me to watch anything if the cast is interesting. Yeah, horse. Well, I think I would rather have watched horses play hockey than the finale of what we got yesterday. No, I, that's silly. like you said, they they've been teasing the scroll stuff for the longest of times, and all across Twitter, I've seen. I'm sorry, all across X, I've seen nothing but <laughs> people like, oh well, we wanted to see. A, an Avenger be revealed as a scroll, and then it was revealed to be uh, John Cheadle's character. It was, Rhodes. It was Scrody, and people the are now like, Rody, Scrody. People were complaining about it, and then you, on top of that, you're like, "Well, then what did you want? Because you wanted this, but now that you got it, you you can't enjoy it." It's it's really interesting. Divided. About They're like, that. it's like your mom's like, or you're like, I want Avengers, and your mom's like, I we have Avengers at home, and the Avenger at home is fucking War Machine. <laughs> I I just I I had high expectations for this show. I mean, Olivia Coleman didn't really do too no, much. No, but and- she was so good, and I hope she sticks around in the universe. As like, she's just so bubbly and British all the She's kind of like the uh, and then, but the like Max. also has this intimidation factor because of like the things that they've shown she's capable of, but like never, she never breaks this like, Oh, Hey, Poppy, like just Olivia Coleman ness of her like character. And I, I thought that was fantastic. And I love where they ended the, her character at the, at the end of this movie or not this movie of this show. Um, very <laughs> curious as to where they go from there. Now that spoiler alert, Cause I'm, I gotta talk about this moment. Well, I'll pre- I'll lead into it with the with the whole moment. But as far as the finale or the full show goes, I highly recommend watching it. It it, it continues to build out the MCU. I don't know what they're gonna do going forward, man. Even I'm starting to feel a little bit of the burnout. Uh, I'll still be an apologist until the day I die for this franchise because I think what they're doing is still like absolutely insane and the the level of cohesion that they are still able to keep 
even though they're like, we're, we're, I, we got to be approaching 50 projects inside of one universe. We're at yeah. like 20 something oh. movies, about 10 or something shows. Oh, and, we're at 30 movies. Yeah. Thir- oh, yeah. So like oh, we're yeah, we're creeping up at like 40, 45, 50. And there is still like there's still so much appeal for me. So I will keep watching it. But now the the finale discussion, because I can I can agree with you about the finale and the little bit of disappointment because it's seemingly so once short. again, it's it, it, it is terribly short. And it's seemingly once again, Marvel just going with their third act, big fight sequence, flying around in the clouds, fight like mm-hmm. like ending just like Loki. Or except for Loki, sorry. Just like WandaVision. I mean, even just like Captain America and the Winter Soldier. Just like Hawkeye. All these shows have to end with their big fight sequences. And this one just doesn't feel very grounded because of, like, the the amounts of CGI and the two characters that are fighting. And it's also there in the air. Um... But at that point in the episode, we fucking have super scrolls that are actively just switching through the powers of all the different Avengers and villains. I thought that was very cool. I didn't know how the scrolls were going to get DNA or be able to become the superheroes. But the fact that they were like Fury had a team of scrolls that were scavenging the like the destruction site of where Endgame was fought in the Battle of Earth, just like scraping off DNA pieces to create like this cluster of DNA. I mean, that's it's ridiculous, but it it makes sense, and I think it's really fucking interesting. But um, the setup you, to that scene, the setup I, to the fight scene, I think really fucking worked. I'm sitting there. It's cutting back between the conversation between a dying radiation poisoned fury and Gravik. And then also we're cutting back to like the situation in the hospital with the president and Scrody. And um, uh, and then we see also Sonia's there. Now, in my mind, I thought Sonia was working with Gaia to go get the president while Fury was there in Russia. And like he had the pills and stuff because he was trying to protect himself from the radiation poisoning, but then he drops all the pills and he starts getting weak and whatnot. But then after Gravik kicks on the machine and turns into a super scroll, I'm like, wait a minute. Did they turn Nick Fury into a fucking super scroll to end this episode? And it almost lost me there. I'm like, that's not what anyone's going to want. And then they, flip the script on me i forgot the number one thing that scrolls do or impersonate each other and it was fucking gaia and now she is also a super scroll my thing is she's like a god level powered being now she has like captain marvel's powers plus every other avenger like she is an unbeatable force and now she's just like working for mi6 (laughs) and i just thought that was like a really small-minded thing for her to be doing after the fact. That's that's the problem that people have been saying is when like Marvel creates these uh, heroes that become too powerful and then their stories become uninteresting. And that's kind of where we're going to be at when we get to Captain Marvel. Uh, I, I would say like, I mean, I was excited to see Amelia Clark in the show. Um, but like I told you, I, increasingly drew interest withdrew my interest once they unfortunately like killed off ben middleson's talos like talos i i was not expecting them to do it at the time they did it and it didn't seem like it was effective like garvik 
uh, Revic, he, like that little twist where like, oh, I'm going to shift into another person on watch and then they kill him. Like I, I was like, this is not, not cool. And then with, like I said, um, the, the scene, cool. the scene you're leading up to where, uh, they're about to like turn into these super crawls and whatnot. I, I just thought the acting on Ben uh, Kinsley Ben Adir was a little too heavy. Dude, I th like that was that extreme. Is what, that is what the MCU has demanded since the Avengers with Loki and his over the top Shakespearean performance. Like that, you you don't want a dull villain. I mean, not everyone can be Philip Seymour Hoffman in Mission Impossible Three, and I'm not saying he's a dull villain. He's intimidating, but without being over the top and shouty all the time. Uh, I mean, I, I'm still always I'm interested in, in the actor because I, I know what he has upcoming and what he's done. I mean, One he was he was love. a Kirby. Uh, I don't. I I mean, this the show really had had a moment where it could have been really special. I guess from what I thought the trailers were leading on to. I mean, it's just every episode the runtime became shorter, and I was like. Like when you first hear it's gonna be six episodes, it's like okay, six forty-five. Yeah, how, it, how minutes, is that a thing bad. that keeps happening with these shows? Because they do it with the Star Wars ones too. Like say, like just make the finale the longest episode. Like what the fuck mm -hmm. are you doing? Yeah, um, or, or just make it four episodes and make a couple of them longer. Like what's wrong with that? Yeah, I don't know. I I think the editing between every uh, these these episodes were just not for it for me. I think that's yeah, why I, mean, I think it would work. I like I haven't watched it all together. I think it would work as a like binge better. I, I mean, obviously, I I I love I like what you said earlier. Where this, you know, I wonder how the binge process would have worked with this show. Remind me again when it's revealed that uh, at the end of episode five, sort of the pre. -old, in uh Pen. finale episode the uh, ultimate. he wants yeah uh Garvik wants the harvest like he wants nick to bring him that was that the first mention of that i think officially or, I, I know i know they were like he's like i need fury he has something i want type thing and then they finally okay. reveal after I'm like episode i think three or four when they reveal that like he has the powers I think they finally allude to it's the DNA of the Avengers, and then they finally name it the Harvest when Fury confirms it in that episode. Because I, I was kind of wondering, like wondering, like maybe if we would have known what his, like what he wanted, uh, his objective as being the villain rather than taking over control and uh, with while leading the scrolls, if that would have just been interesting. I almost liked just him causing chaos and wanting to like reform earth because they never accept, like basically start a world war because they, they were never be able to accept the scrolls into society type thing. Like they always felt in the hiding. My thing is you're starting a war because fury couldn't find you a home. Like they admit like, well, I guess it's Gaia admits that there was never a viable option besides Earth, and Fury just never thought that people would ever come around. I think there was a very specific line that was like, it's easy to save 8 billion people, but it's harder to change their hearts and minds. Like, you can't make people think differently about mm -hmm. others. And, like, that's what th this whole story is alluding to, like, immigration and... And like people of immigrant natures coming into uh, to a, a foreign country or whatever, 
and trying to reside and live their lives while being persecuted. And by the end of this episode, we get the absolute worst case scenario where the president is basically calling for an execution spree of any yeah. and all scrolls you can possibly find, which is leading to legitimately just murder attempts of people who are not scrolls. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that so I, that's probably what's going to get Dermot McDermott out of the fucking Oval Office and have Harrison Ford step in once we get to Captain America. Oh, um, that's right. Mm-hmm. Rickson is out. President Thunderbolt Ross is in. And um, also, did was- you did you catch the cameo that they tried to put in this show that I'm like, no one's going to catch this? Uh, like within the seasons, the last it episode. It wasn't the or last th- episode. I think it was either the fourth or fifth. And Fury just gets on like a jet plane with a guy who is like there to oh, help him. Yeah, the, yeah that's the that dude from Black Widow. What the? Yeah, fuck? that was che- that was cheap. That was I cheap. was like, Oof, no one cares about this guy. Yeah, they. they I thought like we I, were gonna like get I, a Brie Larson cameo for the longest time. I I I just I don't know what they were. I I just. The editing is what really bothered me with this because it it could have been told a little bit better if that was like if their goal was we're going to lead this giant scroll storyline across movies, but we're going to make it a TV show now. Like it should have just been bigger than that. And I mean, better like the expression fumbled the bag I've seen has been very accurate. And I mean, this thing got destroyed on Rotten Tomatoes, the finale, 13 percent like that's for the cast of this talent. That's that's ridiculous. And then. You hear that how ballooned the budget was of like two hundred and twelve million dollars or something like that. Like that's absurd. Like very much ridiculous. I I don't know what Marvel shows are next. I I mean I, I Loki Iron Wars. Is, Loki Loki is there's like uh, yeah Loki season October. two is next. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And then there's like they, Iron Wars and Iron Heart are still probably a thing. I think rumors. I think Echo's still happening. <laughs> I see the I heard that the, that got canned. Like I don't know. I heard the first cuts haven't been so pretty. And Dare, I think oh, Daredevil lost, Born Again is still for sure uh gonna happen. I I just I think when uh Bob Iger made those comments about how like the Marvel fatigue is real and like how he wants to start lowering the amount of content that gets released, I think that might be better. Slow down one yeah. it should be one movie per year. And honestly, maybe or or maybe even even. Uh, no, I think it's one movie per year or maybe even every other year. Like if an Avengers level make us wait, build anticipation. Stop just throwing everything out every three months. And then they're just like so saturated and so over. I mean, like, I love this shit. But like, if you feed me too much of it, I'm going to stop liking it. If I eat pizza every day, I might get sick of pizza. I probably won't get sick of pizza, but I'm just using it as an analogy. Um, it, it's yeah, we we are at the president of just we've seen what type of IP content wise has done good at the movie theaters this summer, and we've seen what has obviously over succeeded that. And for what are conversations that we're about to dive into the IP of what's new is what the audience wants. They don't want to see something that they've already seen before. And I wonder if Marvel's going to have to retrain, re reprogram that strategy just soon to say the least. I mean, I will admit they have movies that I'm excited for. And 
you mentioned Daredevil and Loki. There is still some content that I will be wanting to be a part of, like opening night. I mean, we gotta watch Loki, bro. Yeah. Loki will be Loki will be good. But I mean, that's that's as far as the other MCU shows. Like, honestly, like this, it's shocking how since we've come from WandaVision, that makes me want to like. Okay, maybe WandaVision was better than I gave it because we've yeah. gotten so far off the hill since then. Yeah. I'm I'm serious. WandaVision is it holds up, dude. You know I wasn't a fan of uh Miss Marvel's or, or Yeah, Ms. but Miss Marvel. Marvel and She-Hulk make sense if you she- ever And She-Hulk was I I don't know She-Hulk if it, it, was... it lost me weekly. Just uh, like she- Dude, it's I like the finale of She-Hulk, it's, though. It's I wasn't a lot of it's just that. show. I, it's like I don't know that these move these ideas for comic book. I don't know that these ideas for comic book projects should have ever transferred into the medium of shows. I mean, I almost kind of felt it with Obi Wan as well. Like when you're stretching these things over a span that is longer than a two-hour movie. There is going to be filler. There is going to be more room for error. There is going to be more room for things people don't like. And I think that's what's keeps happening. I mean, yeah, people had problems with movies, but I feel like the discourse overall has been more heavily filtered, or not filtered, but focused on the TV projects. And I mean, we've had some great ones like Loki season one and Werewolf by Night and stuff like that, but I don't know. I uh before we wrap this up, I I would be remiss to uh not mention the 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 romantic angle of this show because like I said up top, this does build out a life for Nick Fury. We get to learn about his past, his mother, and we finally get to see after all these years he wasn't lying when he went. Well, he was probably lying when he said his wife kicked him out in Winter Soldier when he was trying to be sneaky. But he wasn't lying about having a wife because he he's literally married to a scroll. He is married to one of the scrolls that helped him like foster these 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 species the these this the the scroll race into Earth when they first arrived with Talos. And all these years later, they are married and in love, and she understands his job is what he does, and it's so crazy. And he's been gone for all this time post blip just up there at Sabre, and she's like, whatever. And, like, it's the perfect wife Nick Fury could ask for. And, like, they also show that that there's genuine love between them, and, like, they build that their relationship is flawed but strong. And by the end, you get to see them have their, like, happy ending. So I, I really did enjoy that aspect of the whole show. Uh, I mean, yeah. What you wanted Nick Fury to just be a sad, lonely guy that just only works? That's fucked up. No, it was just it was also fuck fuck them for killing Maria Hill. That was also annoying. That yes, because they that, it was almost like it's because they because they never come back to it. By the end of the show, yeah. they're just like it's in like every, oh hey, bye. In Maria every Hill's episode gone. after that, there were like in special appearance by Kobe. I was like, she wasn't in it. She was not in it. But yeah, I'd say overall a lot of great things with this show, but maybe they need to take a step back and think about maybe focusing more solely on film projects or at least 
giving them a decent amount of time in between each project so that they can more highly focus working on one at a time. So speaking about the same company, but moving out of the TV corner for now, unfortunately, everyone say bye bye TV corner. Uh, hey, we don't now know if you'll ever return. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's harsh. Now we move into the realm of film with Disney's newest release. Again, something we got to see a wee bit early. Uh, we didn't watch it together, which I am very mad about because I would have been able to tell you about all the special Easter eggs and facts that have the connections to the ride. But bet, uh, I bet know, I'm I'll... guessing that's why you didn't watch it with me. <laughs> Chase had to deal with it. <laughs> low, low, low key. Half. I'm like, oh, my God, that's yeah. Gus, Ezra and Phineas, the hitchhiking ghost. Oh, there's. Yeah. yeah oh, there's this. I, there's Gus's I, Hatchway, never... the murder bride. Never Captain been to Moore. Disneyland, Disney World. So like all this would have been. Complete, but this, but okay, but that's, but that's also something I wanted. I we got a really good Venn diagram, or not Venn diagram, but we got a good battle going up because we got me who can't get enough of this shit when it comes to like Disney and Disney attractions and lore about Disney fucking rides. Like I eat that shit up, and then we have you who could not care less and is watching this as surface level as possible, being like. Oh, this is just like a silly haunted mansion movie from Disney. So clearly, we're gonna have different opinions, but we somehow kind of we're. All, I I feel like we're almost in the same place, review wise, but for wildly different reasons. I mean, I did really enjoy this movie. I thought the setup was fun and original, and not just another Eddie Murphy cookie cutter. Dad's too busy with work and has to learn how to like take or like be a, a better family man type thing that we saw 900 times before the haunted mansion in 2003 came out. We got like a group of unique and quirky characters that are all finding their way into the haunted mansion, like the haunted mansion. First and foremost, everything in this movie looks fucking amazing. The facade couldn't look more like the actual rot, like, or the actual, Mansion in the movie couldn't look more like the facade from the Disneyland ride if it was like actually shot there because they I mean, yes, it's a more dilapidated version and a more lived in like true mansion style, not ride facade on the interior. But like the exterior looks perfect. All the interior is perfect that they could. I The Haunted Mansion itself. Phenomenal. It, it now is this. You explaining the ride just for the folks no, at home. This is the movie. This okay, I'm saying. Explain the ride. How does the ride go about? What do you mean? Explain the ride. It's the fucking haunted mansion. Yeah, walk I, in. You, walk, you, you go walk into the stretching. No, you, so all you do is walk around. So you walk. There's there's multiple parts to the ride. So you got your line that's queuing up outside because you're got like and you're an hour wait, and then groups of like thirty or forty people start filing into the actual mansion to go through these show scenes. Like the stretching room, the scene in the movie where they're like the room is stretching upwards. That is part of the ride where you're standing in that room. And if you're in Disneyland, you actually go down in an elevator. And if you're in Disney World, the room actually rises up and you stay stationary. And that's just because one of them's at sea level and the other is not. So they couldn't go down in Florida. Hmm. Fun fact. 
But well, so man, you go into the no stretching room and then there's like a whole ghost host introduction sequence where there's like a fun narration where he's like, is this room actually stretching? And he's like, you'll also notice that this room has no doors and no windows. So it, it uh, I offer this chilling challenge to find a way out. And then boom, lightning. There's a dude hanging himself in the rafters that you get to see through this lighting effect. And then you go down a hallway and you're still kind of in line and you're in line and you're going down this hallway to go to your ride vehicles where you sit in like this chair. Another thing that they got right in the movie is the chair that they sit in when they're doing the seance, like specifically Tiffany Haddish is sitting in, looks like the ride vehicles that you sit in in the ride as it takes you through this like haunted mansion experience. But as far as the movie versus the rides go, you have almost every major set piece from the ride. You have the graveyard sequence with the hitchhiking ghosts and like all the other like miscellaneous happy haunts. You have the attic sequence with Constance Hatchaway, the murder bride who chops off the heads of all of her husbands. And the, and you see her in this movie, you have, uh, they never confirmed this, but the sea captain character, the ghost that's yeah. following Ben's character, Mariner. the Mariner, could be a reference to Captain Gore, which was the original main character for the Haunted Mansion in pre-production before they really solidified on one story. That was one of the ideas was to make it about a sea captain whose victims are haunting this mansion. And little remnants of that story stay in the mansion, but not it's not actually what the Haunted Mansion is about. There's no real official story to the Haunted Mansion, but like they continue the story with uh, Will Gr William Gracie, who is named after Yale Gracie, one of the conceptual Imagineers for the Haunted Mansion. Uh, he's the owner of the mansion in the ride, and so there he is the owner of the mansion in this movie and in the Eddie Murphy movie. Uh, I mean, you got... It, so again, the, the my I have zero gripes when it comes to how well they adapted the ride into the movie. My gripes come when every time that we're getting a perfect representation of what a haunted mansion movie could be, they kind of like step aside and it becomes daytime and they're like on some weird normal person mission or you get a exposition dump from one of the characters in a long saying scene There's or Danny DeVito is rattling off some history about the house. And it is just breaking up the momentum you have building of this combination, silly, spooky, ridiculous hat, like grim grinning, like all of this shit is working. And then it just abruptly comes to a halt all that, the time. That is Probably where I came off of where I was like, okay, this movie might be too long. It is like right at two hours, maybe like an hour 55 ish or something like that. And you, how many days were they the in the length. mansion? Yeah. You, like you it, it felt like it was 20 days, maybe. It yeah. just kept being day, night, day, night, day, night, it, day, night. There was one payoff in the human missions that they do during the day. And that was when we got the cameo from Winona Ryder and Dan Levy. Well, yeah, but like he wore way too much. Like Bro, no one's, I, I don't think no one's gonna recognize him. I'm like, is that Dan I think, Levy? I don't think people. Why well, when they showed that part in the credit, they right, they didn't show Winona Ryder, but they showed Levy. Which I mean, I was more shocked to see him than Winona Ryder. But yeah, some of the the day missions were pretty funny, especially like the sketch scene. Like I thought the movie was hilarious mm -hmm. and kind of surprised me on that one. If if I were to compare the Eddie Murphy one to this one. 
The only difference I would take is the O three one. Not funny. It's He's not funny. Not funny in that movie. That's it, what pissed me off funny, when rewatching it. They use, but they're using actual like uh, school effects. Like the the, the ghosts are w- weird sure. people. Weird people. Real people wearing makeup. Like the prosthetics well, and all that with, was really with dope. With some and digital really cool. stuff to yes. enhance them in that movie as well. I, but you're, I remember you're that totally right. It's really a lot. Cool. Dude, Rick Baker, it's a testament to Disney at the time because they got one of the best visual, of, like practical visual effects artists in the legendary Rick Baker to do like the zombies and the ghosts for that movie. And I will say the ghosts look really good as far as being like ethereal blue figures. But like when I think they look at their best when we can see them. There's also an issue with this movie where we're only seeing the ghosts in like weird bursts from like the camera thing for the longest time. And like, eventually I'm like, Oh, that's the ghost host because I finally get to actually see him or, Oh, that was Constance, like whatever. And it's just, it gets, it, it gets a little, it made, it can, I mean, I think watching this again without the anticipation levels, maybe I'll get it better, but it just kept every time it was getting going and getting to be like, Oh my yeah. God. Like Lakeith Stanfield is the best part of this movie, maybe because oh, he is like a, a like a good main character to be following. I do think the movie gets bogged down with its Owen Wilson's and Danny DeVito's and even its uh, Tiffany, ha- especially as Tiffany Haddish's her her shtick got old fast. I'll be honest. Um, but if it could have been just Ben, who was like into the supernatural. And then Rosario Dawson and her son, I think we could have had a well, a very a much better, more contained movie. Like you can even have his whole backstory and everything that would make sense. Why he was into like contacting spiritual entities in that nature. And then we don't have, I mean, yes, they were goofy and quirky, but they didn't really add anything for me. And you also, you also can keep Jamie Lee Curtis. Cause she was fantastic as Madame Leota, just like coming in and being as, hammy as possible but yeah, yeah I, I mean I, Lakeith Stanfield I mean what a grad they got him I, I yeah. wonder I've been seeing some people talk about the bag he got just to do this but I mean I think he's an actor that doesn't he should be getting worked a lot more and he's not and there's been I mean not to like really drag the um I guess the politics into it but I've been seeing a lot of people talk about how if Marvel wants to recast Kane like he should be the guy to go about it Lakeith Stanfield and I mean, it'd be an interesting, you know, attention just to see him in the role for Marvel. But I thought he was definitely the best part of this movie. I will say I like the comedic performance that Owen Wilson gives and Danny DeVito. That that was I mean, you know, their comedic timing as well as Tiffany Haddish. I mean, it took me a little bit longer to get familiar with her. Uh, I will say what was hilarious um, right from the get go was in the beginning you have Rosario Dawson who like, it's great to see her again. I know she's kind of been away for like a strange period of time. Like in that early 2000 run, she was always in everything. Um, But now she's like kind of making some more stuff and getting back out there, which is great. Uh, There's a scene early in in the beginning of the movie where her, her her son moved to the house for the first time. The son starts seeing the ghosts. And I will say like for, you know, an audience driven for, I would say, well, you know children like there's some spooky elements to it and the kid gets scared and the mom's like you know we're gonna be okay this is our home now like we're gonna be oh, here the cut with the armor the oh my god and she she's like yeah we're leaving 
And we're like, yeah, and like, oh my god, that's so good. Trope between you know haunted uh, haunted house movies with white families and black families. Like, what you honestly, know, like <laughs> black families not going to stay there. Yeah, very true. <laughs> and it was and honestly, hilarious. I think the cutting and the editing added a lot to the comedic effect. I remember there was a cut, and next thing you know, they're at a hibachi restaurant, and Danny DeVito is wearing a clear yeah. raincoat and matching yeah. hat, and I just started dying laughing because so, I was like. Why? <laughs> okay. No, it wasn't even raining. There was absolutely no reason for it. So, so yeah, I saw this in a screening, and I know you didn't get a big audience, but I will say the biggest laugh in my uh, screening was when uh, Lakey Stanfield was given his emotional monologue about his wife dying, and like how oh, she was like, he's like tater tot. He's like, what kind? Of, what's the cholesterol on this girl? And like yeah. everyone lost it. Like anytime Danny DeVito was just giving these one-liners like the audience was just eating it up and and it's great to see him and i know maybe a lot of people don't remember him or recognize him from a lot of the his earlier comedic work but i think he is just a, a treasure and i think he easily deserves the adoration that he gets um yeah, yeah i mean yeah. i i think it's interesting with these Disney rides that keeps getting adapted because i was a fan of jungle cruise i thought that the chemistry of the rock and emily blunt had was honestly better than what we I could have predicted and i thought that this film was better than it could have been because i remember the first trailer i was like this looks bad and then the second one came out and kind of revealed a little bit more of its skin and i was like okay this looks pretty good and from what we've had so far this summer i i kind of think this could be a nice little run-of-the-mill surprise for some families looking to get an escape yeah, and no, definitely. Not... I mean, and so, and all right, and I guess the last thing we have to mention, we got to talk Jared about Leto. It. Jared Leto, who is not, I wouldn't say he's even really in this movie. You couldn't, you couldn't pay someone to look at a picture of Jared Leto and be like, find this guy in the haunted mansion. And then no one, zero out of zero, no one would find him. Uh, because he's under a thick layer of CGI makeup and using a voice modulator to actually really play the f- Hatbox Ghost fantastically. The Hatbox Ghost specifically is such an infamous character in the Haunted Mansion lore. The story behind him goes, when they originally opened the ride in Disneyland, there was a animatronic uh, called the Hatbox Ghost in the ride for only what seemed like the first week or so of the ride's operation. And the Hatbox Ghost was this animatronic that had this effect using lights and mirrors where you would see this this dude, this creepy dude with his hair all out and his top hat and his head, and then his head would disappear and reappear in his hat box that he was holding. Apparently the animatronic and the effect did not work uh, up to the level that like they wanted it to. So they just removed it from the ride. And like for 30 years after people were like, where is the hat box ghost? What happened to the hat box ghost? It grew this like infamy on its own. And then from there, Disney finally decided years later, once they had the technology to put the hat box ghost back into the Disneyland ride. And they officially announced they're also putting him in the Florida haunted mansion. And so now all these years later, he's like a, a mainstay, uh, I mean, ask Guillermo del Toro. I'll tell you all about the Hatbox Ghost, my guy. I'm pretty sure he has one. He has like a whole Hatbox Ghost statue in his house. He loves the Haunted Mansion. We all know this. He was going to make this movie, basically, and then didn't. With 
with with Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling, it would have been so good. Especially after uh-huh. the weekend we've had, that would have been that would have been that that's one of those uh, we wish had got made movies for sure. Right? Oh, it's you know? it's might be my number one. That and Ben Affleck's Batman's Batman. I thought there was another. I thought there was another one, like more recognizable that I obviously I can't remember. Um, mine might have to be the. Yeah, uh, if it comes, you just shout it out. My mine might have to be the supposed. Uh, Anaconda reboot that was at the start of 2020, and then obviously we know what happened at the middle of 2020 to kind of change a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But there was an Anaconda reboot in the works, and that would have really been exciting for me. That's funny. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I I, I do I also want to wait, but, but before street. you go, I do wanted to mention you mentioned oh, that. Am I going somewhere? I right. Nothing there's else. The, to talk there's about, that so other yeah. mansion. The other mansion they go to, the Crump Mansion, and the Crump Mansion. So, yeah. so the Gracie Mansion is the one in New Orleans, and it's also the one made to look out like the ride in Disneyland, which is like a Southern plantation style house, and that's the Gracie Manor. And then in Florida, apparently the Crump Mansion, which is in Florida in this movie. And named after Raleigh Crump, who is another Disney Imagineer who had an A hand in creating the ride, which I love the little reference there. Um, that one is based off that one is made to look like the Florida ride. So the other ha- the other mansion they go to that's supposedly haunted is the second haunted mansion, the one that's in Florida that's made to look more like a New England style northern mansion. And I thought that was hilarious and just like an unnecessary little addition. And like I said, I love that they're naming these things after the actual people who came up with the Haunted Mansion. They're giving them their due diligence. Like I said way earlier, you got all these Easter eggs with all the different ghosts and you get the different set pieces. They they do all that. And I, I, I get and like I said, I think my only gripe that becomes a big enough gripe that I only gave this three enough three and a half stars is that. Every time this movie is getting perfect, it takes a it like goes the wrong way. It like turns and goes off into the in the in the wrong direction. Uh, and I and I wouldn't even say it's a bad direction. The storylines and the stories and the the exposition that they're setting up isn't bad. It's just detracting. You could have given me an hour and 50 minute movie of ghosts doing silly shit. And I would have loved every second of it because that's what the Haunted Mansion is. Just a bunch of wacky, kooky ghosts that are having fun scaring people. Yeah. I was like I said, I was surprised by this. So I I'll 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 take it. Absolutely. And I'll take that you take it. You and Chase were both like, I had no intention of liking this, but I actually had a pretty good time. It, I mean, honestly, Sorry, yeah. Can we talk about that spot on Chase impression? <laughs> He'll never hear it. <laughs> He won't even hear the episode he was on. I know. It's live, yeah. and he will never even hear it, any of it. All right, let's leave the world of Disney for something that uh kind of took the actual world by storm, and that is Barbenheimer fever. Uh this summer runs uh the summer's running. What am I trying to say? The wa- the waters of summer are running pink and orange. They, yeah. I don't know. There hey, we go. It works. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, hyperbole works. And other times I sound like a crazy person. But anyways, we are talking about the absolutely insane box office record shattering 
double feature of the century that isn't actually anything special in 2008. Mamma Mia came out the same day as The Dark Knight. Where was I going with this? But we're talking about Oppenheimer first. So let's just get into that movie. I'm going to let you take this one away because. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, uh, like like you said, (laughs) Barbenheimer. Uh, established itself well across. You know, I actually can we reasons. can we can we start Oppenharby? I mean, like I didn't come up with that, but I kind of like Oppenharby better. It just doesn't roll off the tongue like I know. I do. Barbenheimer. They just both work. Yeah. Uh, I mean, right off right off the bat, I mean, when you're talking about these films together, it was probably it was the fourth biggest box office weekend of all time. Um, and we we we've we saw that hands on it. And as I mentioned at the top of the hour, just. This is original IP. Like, say what you want about Barbie. Like, it, it was IP that they haven't had before in terms of feature film. And same with Oppenheimer. I mean, Christopher Nolan brought that story to life. I mean, they're and both. They're both. They were both based off of historical figures, they, and they, they are, both but, took. And they both were taking on the patriarchy. And both of these have were were imagined for the first time and and the audience just loved it. They didn't they were tired of seeing the superhero sequels, the, the you know the seventh film of entries uh referring to Mission Impossible and Transformers. Like people wanted something new. They wanted fresh blood and this is what they got. And both films substantially d- you know destroyed the box office numbers even on Mondays and Tuesday respectively. Like you're seeing single day uh, and Wednesday. I got fucked new. yesterday. See and so there you go. Like and and it's incredible how like we've come throughout the summer where there hasn't been much, and then you get two films to just really nothing's gonna save what we've had, unfortunately. But this was a great sight to actually witness. And you know, I I saw a couple, you know, not a whole lot, but I've seen a couple people do the double feature where like I saw you know couples come in for Barbie or for Oppenheimer, and then they come back later the same day to watch the other one. Like it's it's a really cool feat to have, and it's one of those conversations where you just want to be a part of it. And I understand people that are like wanting to wait till it kind of slows down because it is busy. Like I like I've been hearing talks and like seeing Sunday nights being sold out, and like that hasn't happened in a long time. Like not I yeah people have Avatar, work on Mondays and they're choosing to yeah, watch a fucking ten three hour movie at ten thirty yeah. at night. What an irresponsible asshole. <laughs> yeah, because you know we didn't watch it. Our yeah, we definitely up. didn't watch it at midnight and then stay up till five a.m. watching five hours of movie. Um. Okay. So <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll start with Oppenheimer and and Christopher Nolan's just extraordinary achievement oh. is he he betted on himself with this. Uh, he had a, a a breakup with WB, and yes, the WB that released Barbie on the same day. He had a breakup with, with Warner Bros. during the release strategy of Tenet and kind of how um, exploited that got in terms of releasing it in theaters, limited the streaming wars that's been going on and him being very vocal about it. And so he decided to, you know, which you don't really see much ever. It's just like Christopher Nolan is a free agent for studios and the bids were across the board. I'm pretty sure uh Oppenheimer was released by Universal Studios but there were like Netflix was very close in grabbing this uh Paramount I think was a heavy front runner and I know Paramount would have been thrilled to have something like this on their books uh and Universal like they I mean Christopher Nolan created a pretty pretty I guess good relations for them and here we got we got Oppenheimer the story 
of, of Robert Oppenheimer's role in the development of the atomic bomb during the World War II based upon the book American Prometheus. And I, I looked at the book and I'm like, oh, you know, that might not be a bad thing to have on the shelf. Uh, 784 pages later, I'm like, there's no way I could I could read that, I guess. And and we just we get the makings of something we haven't really had before. Right? Christopher Nolan being, you know, quite the prodigy uh, as a filmmaker himself and, and establishing himself as a name early on and then just taking off with the, the his own Batman franchise and, and what that brought to a lot of people. And then his take, like he's, he's, I would say his signature style is the twist that he has in his third act. He's always visionary about that. And his storytelling is unique and on its own. And there's not many out directors out there that can compare themselves to that. And he, he's like, I, he's deserved it. Like I know people get made fun of when they're like, Oh, I'm a Nolan guy, and like, there's nothing better than that. Like, he he proves himself when he makes films like this and Dunkirk, where and and moment like these type of more grounded characters. Like, he's able to. I mean, Dunkirk doesn't even have characters, and the story's fucking interesting. So I don't even care the haters on that one. But he brings us Oppenheimer, which is just unprecedented for a three-hour, you know, drama thriller in the heat of the summer. Pun intended. Word there. heavy. Like, this is a wordy like, film. Like yeah, d- dialogue driven for n- sure. It's ninety percent talking. It's not yeah, you would not expect it to do the numbers it's doing this this summer in its first week. You know, eighty million, eighty million, which a lot of filmmakers would love that. And this competed with Barbie. And I think the three hour runtime, obviously, you know, if you lower that down, it could have made it could have gross more. But people are still showing up all times of the day, and like all screens are getting what they can out of this, and and the audiences are eating it up. And I mean, it's deservingly going to be a front runner heading to the award season. I mean, on on top of that, I, I, I have it listed out. I, I can easily see this being nominated in picture, director, actor, supporting actor, supporting actress, score. editing, score, production, sound, cinematography, costume design, and screenplay. That's nearly, that's <laughs> nearly 12. If only like, it was an animated movie. <laughs> like, yeah, if only it was animated, maybe. And from a different country. Actors. Yeah, like, like this might break some nomination records, and I think it's well earned. I mean, the effects he uses to create the ultimate scene, the Trinity test, is just—it's remarkable. I mean, I, I actually—if you give me a hot second, I can pull up because they actually just released this week how they came across. They they filmed it, which is just monumental to a lot see of it. TNT and gasoline. Yeah, to see the scene play out itself was just really cool. And I mean, I the mean, man did state. Officially, there is no CGI shots in this movie, and that mm-hmm. fucking blows my mind. I mean, it may it does make sense, and apparently they created digital or no, they created black and white seventy millimeter IMAX film, like literally invented it just for this movie, just so they could have this uh, split duality of this storytelling method. I which we both like. Definitely, we're gl- like clicking with at the beginning, but the Christopher Nolan is above all else a, a a lover of film and a technical master of filmmaking, and the way he is able to have this dual structure storytelling where the stuff that is in color is from Oppenheimer's perspective, and the stuff that is in black and white was from uh Robert Downey Jr.'s character whose name is escaping me's point of view. Um, 
and and it still all works and it's transitioning flawlessly between the two. And sometimes we're seeing the same scenes over and over again, but from the different person's perspective in the different kind of color palette, it all just is so technically perfect every single aspect. So yeah, I could see him sweeping that category, all the technical categories. This is this year's avatar at this point. Like, yeah, I mean, I, it could somehow win visual effects and have no CGI in it. Like I could, I mean that confident. So that that's the one category where I'm kind of curious to see if it, if it gets, because uh, you know, they love the, the, the Academy loves not, they don't love CGI. They love realistic looking shit. Um, yeah, so he he basically came out and talked about like what he did, uh, what they used to create the explosion, and it uses a mixture. So yeah, there's no there's no CGI, which is astonishing. And so early on, people are like, you know, Nolan would be the guy to just make an atomic bomb and drop it on the world just to get that right that right, right. picture. Right, start a nuclear holocaust just for his yeah. one shot he needs. Yeah. Um, but what they. What they used was a combination of uh, looks looks like high black powder explosion, petrol, magnesium flares, and the. Th- Whoa! The how about we don't it. tell people how to make a bomb on this podcast? Okay. <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's we're going to get like, flagged by the FBI. What are you doing out here? Uh, so the the Trinity test is obviously well worth the the wait. Uh, the leading up to it is extraordinary and. I don't want to go any further without talking about like Killian Murphy is absolutely phenomenal in this mm-hmm. role. I mean, talk about a performance that is just, you know, career defining and he's been in, you know, the shoes waiting for something like this. I know he's been a standout in Peaky Blinders and I've haven't been watching too much of that to really become part of the circle, but he's been with Nolan for a long time. And when you look at side by photos of him and actual Robert Oppenheimer, they look identical. It's, it's shocking how they did did with that. And you're you're a part of Killian and his performance like the whole time and like the passion brought between both visions and bringing it onto the screen and it's just remarkable how like this is this is great shit like it's not often you see a story centered around you know an individual's just haunting sin of like the reminders of you know the horrors they're gonna cause in the future and like wanting to ob- obtain that goal and then doing it and getting you know, suffering the repercussions from that while also facing, I mean, just, it, it, it's it's remarkable. I, I don't really know what more I could say with Killian Murphy aside from, like, I would love to see him win the Oscar for Best Actor. Uh, the only other performance without seeing it that I could see being the main competition would be Bradley Cooper's Maestro. Um, there, It's, it's going to be a competitive race. Like, we're going to have one of the best. I mean, you have Phoenix, DiCaprio, there's a lot of people coming out there uh, that could tackle this, but I also wanted to mention uh, Ludwig Gronison's score is beautiful, haunting. Um, I mean, you can feel the rage of fire between each each score, as well as just the soul that plays into Murphy's performance of of, of Oppenheimer. And I I thought it was just awesome. And on top of that, you have like. A remarkable supporting cast. I mean, I know the jokes like Oppenheimer bingo, where it's just like, <laughs> uh, which of the cast are you going to see first? Like that part's always funny. And I, bro, your I, head I, is like actively got to be like, 
it's almost a distraction how how hard your head is on a swivel being like holy shit it's that guy holy shit it's that guy holy shit it's that guy from that and this guy from this and josh from drake and josh and roderick from diary of the wimpy kid and will stronghold from fucking sky high like what the hell the people in this movie is insane well my my favorite was josh hartnett i i mean i've been such a fan of that actor in the early 2000s just when i was getting attached to cinema and like how i mean it's so great to see him in this because he was originally one of the front runners for the Batman and Christopher Nolan's universe. Like mm. between Gillian Murphy himself and Christian Bale, like Josh Hartnett was also one of the front, like, you know, front runners to even kind of don that, but it never went past like talking points, but still Josh Hartnett was great to see. And then you have Matt Damon, who is like, entering the dad movie phase of his career, which is no, no, no shame in that. Cause he's been amazing. You get Emily Blunt who unfortunately doesn't get to do what Emily Blunt does best. But when she has, you know, when she has the ball, she's dribbling past defenders left and right. And it, it is insane what she's been able to do. I know the, this is one of those things where like rare occasions where if she were to win a supporting actress, it's going to be for the wrong film. Cause she doesn't get to do what you like to see Emily Blunt do. I mean, this isn't like Sicario or Edge of Tomorrow. Like she's really one of the you know fourth, fifth, sixth wheels operating on this machine, and it's still great to see her as well as Florence Pugh, Benny Savis, uh, Robert Downey no, Jr. No, whoa, slow down, Benny Saf, Benny Safty, not Safty. Savish. Savage, Savage, Ben Savage. That's what I'm man. saying. You're like, chill out, bro. Hey, Say the names. <laughs> This is not Boy Meets World. Ben this Savage is not here. <laughs> fight the crossover. Uh, okay, okay, real quick. The, the Robert Downey Jr. side of this. Okay. I, I Finally. Know Holy are... shit. I was literally like, is this man not going to talk about the guy who I actually think stole the show in a performance that I don't think we've seen from him since probably like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Pre-Iron Man, where he was essentially playing in a a heightened version of himself. Like, this is an actor's performance. This isn't fucking Doolittle, bro. This is Robert Downey Jr. stepping up and showing why he is one of the most and strongest actors in Hollywood. Like, come award season, I almost have a better... Like, if if I'm making odds in Vegas, I'm almost putting better odds on Downey Jr. than I am on J. Robert Oppenheimer or on uh So Murphy. I this this would be pretty interesting because where Robert Downey Jr. does give one of his better performance of his career and and like you said, you know, he he's been away from this because he's been playing Iron Man for so long. But I think people certainly have forgotten that he was a talented actor in all genres before that. And and I think Zodiac is one of his his best mm-hmm. performance before before he latches on. And you really see it in here that he it, he doesn't have much dialogue, but his facial expressions towards scenes where the camera's drawn right on him, like really pulls it apart. And you learn midway without even being told that this story is being told from different perspectives between Robert Downey Jr. and Killian Murphy. And and my only pull from him winning a, an Oscar for this would be that the divided audience that isn't liking the film, isn't liking the black and white and the courtroom part of it that involves Robert Downey Jr. That's the only thing that I've been seeing separated from it, but That's these are the people the that don't vote for the so Oscars. Strong. That but yeah, like I, I'm he's like, the... so it's over, and then he has to go yeah. address the reporters. That's 
tough fucking where we shit get to where not... we get one of the best yeah. Nolan needle drops where he's like, who was the guy that that you know appended me or whatnot? And it was like, oh, just you know, some senator named John F. Kennedy. Like, yeah, oh, okay, okay, Nolan. Yeah, I, it's the last hour of this film is where it tests people. And I and I I think what we got with Christopher Nolan was the better version of that because it would have been really it would have been more boring or less effective if we just got 20 minutes less and the last 20 minutes was more of like Killian Murphy just standing at it alone in his house, like understanding like what he did was bad. Like knowing that we got to see this battle sequence between, you know, the kangaroo court. Like all that was very interesting and and I think compelling and in, to its own point, the narrative structure that Nolan brought with us for that and the shifting perspectives and the twist mm-hmm. of like Robert Downey Jr. was behind all of this all along was so cool. Like mm-hmm. it, I think I, I don't know how you could not be interested in that. Um, and especially just Robbie Malik, Gary Oldman and Casey Affleck, three best actors within the last decade coming in and delivering like some of the best heat check performances like five minutes not much dialogue but so menacing towards oppenheimer and just i mean wait what three names did you just say rami malik coming in and saving oppenheimer oh and then you have casey affleck oh you mean you mean oscar award-winning rami malik for his starring role in bohemian rhapsody i love it yeah, it's 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 criminal. It's unfortunate. Well, Bradley Cooper's about to win another one this year, baby. Don't don't tempt me with a good time. I I I think it's really it was really cool to see all that, and and obviously it's it's a film that a lot of people wanted to be a part of, and so seeing like how long this cast is, it it's you, you want to work with someone on these natures of that, like you just you do, like there's nothing differently about that to say the least. All right. Time for my spiel, because, I mean, you pretty much summed up most of the things about the characters. I mean, Killian Murphy is able to do so much with just his facial expressions and the way he manipulates his face, manipulates his face. You almost know what he's thinking at all times of like his the whole uh, like mental Manip- like not even like his mental battle of like what he's doing versus like the effects of what is happening and like how he's just internally fighting himself on that notion. Uh, all that is amazing. I mean, he conveys the character and what's going on with the character's head. And like, it just goes from like a dream come true where he's creating this thing for the government to an absolute guilt written, like guilt fueled nightmare that he constantly has to deal with. And you see that in, in, in his performance and I like how you address that. Like, yeah, Florence Pugh and Emily Blunt, they do their th- blunt, they do their thing, uh, but they are very underutilized as like the caliber actress. There is, there is, uh, it's one of those Bechdel test situations where you got no female characters in this movie with real substantial roles. They're more just like there to be women in the movie, but they are two of the best acting women in Hollywood right now. And they absolutely destroyed the scenes that they're in. So that was very uh, good. It was good to watch. Um, I mean, we said it earlier. There's so many fucking people. You could literally spend a two hour podcast just going performance by performance and doing that. But like at the end of the day, you got this movie that is not it is less a movie about the actual creation of the atomic bomb. I mean, yes, it is a biopic that is like brought to life with such grace and grand sweeping presentation. 
but it is less a movie about the built like the actual creation of the atomic bomb and more so about how a man's greatest achievement became his greatest regret and how i i would also say it's very much also about how the birth of humanity's greatest means of self-destruction was the mark of the turn of the century and a momentum shifting for the entire world moment, not just this like, oh, we tested a bomb. And it was like like the 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 shockwave of them creating this weapon resonated for years and years and and uh, probably until this day. The way that Christopher Nolan delivers a movie of impossible scale and uncomfortable intensity throughout the entirety of this movie while depicting this story of this man who really just like battled with this internal struggle and the things that the government tried to do to like basically disown him after they were like, yeah, that was a bad idea. Basically just like backtracking. I couldn't have asked for anything more with this movie. I mean, is it the most entertaining three hours I've ever watched? No. Is it a captivating, absolutely perfectly told story? And like I said, up top has every technical aspect at 11. Yeah. So it is 100% worth watching on those merits alone. And honestly, if I watch it again, I could easily give it an extra half star on my ranking. Um, I think yeah, I, it, it, it's one of those where like, we don't know what no one's going to do next. Uh, well, he doesn't, he's not going to work on anything until the writers yeah. and the actors get fucking paid. So pay them. So, I don't want to spend too much into this conversation, but I think our audience wouldn't mind hearing what our top known films are. Uh, if we want to, if we want to do that, I mean, knowing I say that and how extraordinarily we talked about Oppenheimer here and just how great of a film that is and the achievement that it has become, it's not in my top five for Nolan. And I, and I think that goes to show you just how overall he's, he is. And so I, I will just give you my top five. I my my number five being tenant. I think this is just an extra like fantastic storytelling. Whether you understand it or not, the fact that it was able to pull it off was amazing, and the cast is Mm -hmm. just so good with the two with the three roles. I guess Inception four, Dark Knight three, Interstellar two, and Dunkirk one. I I I think a lot of those Dunkirk to me is just his best directed film because there's no, no there's no characters. There's no character. Yes, there is. They, there's no. There's there no, are characters. They just fail to give you in any kind of investment into really, them because they're supposed to play soldiers of war. Like that's sure. that's like Nolan is definitely going back into the. I'd the rather watch a Saving Private Ryan where I give a shit about the people. Well, I mean, we all gave a shit with Tom Hardy. Like, I did I, not. I, think, I didn't. I didn't realize it was him under that mask. Th- this well, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> I think if we go back in time and like you look at the Oscars from that season and in Shape of Water haven't been, you know, not as critically claimed since it's it's Oscar win. I wonder if he would go back and just give this to Dunkirk. Like, mm. I think, you know, 1917 was close. We haven't had a war film in, in, in some time. And so it's it's to me, it's still one of the better achievements of Nolan's career, aside from like his sci fi films in which everyone loves in their own unique ways. Mm-hmm. 
Fair enough. I mean, I would go, I mean, Oppenheimer sits at six, so I would go five Interstellar, four Dark Knight Rises, three Prestige, two Batman Begins, and then one is the Dark Knight. I, like, I did, you did, you wanted to play this game, bro. <laughs> I got to remember who I'm setting, stepping in the, the ring Prestige should have been your number one. Prestige is good. I, I will admit, like, on rewatch, that movie does get better. And the fact that not many people have seen that movie, because that was Wolverine and, and Batman in one in the same film in the summer of, like, 06. Like, why did not that movie did not make as much <laughs> yeah. as it did? And to the other half of our, you know, just phenomenal weekend that we've gotten to be presented to us and just deservingly so. Because, the barb of the Heimer, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Like, every everyone involved in this film is just, just a love member into our society, to say the least. And just great to witness, you know, a refreshing take on something that is pretty much beloved. I mean, Barbie is a very strong IP from Mattel. And I think what they were able to create uh, with the hands of Greta Gerwig behind the camera and Margot Robbie, not only just starring as the title role, but also producing and getting this film off the ground is just incredible like i mean for a woman a woman filmmaker to have quite the box office success that the film has already had within one week um goes to show you just one greta gerwig's incredible talent that she already is as a filmmaker if you haven't seen lady bird or little women i recommend getting onto that asap the and then margot robbie who's been at this point, a decade in our lives and always playing interesting characters and bringing the best out of something so maybe unoriginal and bringing out the best of that. Like, I don't really know if there's many roles that she has where you want to see someone else in that character, um, especially Harley Quinn. For the unfortunate circumstances of, of how those have been received uh, commercially, like, she still is one of the best parts of that. I know last year, everyone was just blown out the wa water of what she did in Babylon and you know nominated for best actress in I Tanya one of her first like truly breakout roles being independent um it's it's great to see that and then you get Ryan Gosling leading the Ken the Ken army uh the Ken farm like mm -hmm. the, the patriarch as you can say the Kendom um, the Kendom yeah there you go yeah duh uh, I got to rewatch this <laughs> The Kendom run, run uh, where the headquarters is the Mojo Dojo Casa House. Yeah, I mean, we can really get into this cast. Uh, just right off the bat, you get America Fieri, Ferreira. Kate McKinnon, Ferreira, Kate McKinnon, Will Ferrell, Michael Sierra, Simi Liu, Isaray, Kinsley Benadir, Alexander Ship, Emma Mackey. Uh, I mean, just. An incredible amount of John Cena, yeah, yep. It is an exciting film and like a fresh of breath, you know, Age. originality to say the least. I mean, I I think that this film had for me personally, it had a lot to do to impress me because you know, given the idea, it's like, what are you going to do with it? And I thought they hit it out of the park. I mean, it was the hardest I've laughed in a long time. Uh, truly one of the better comedy films that we've had in recent years. And then mixing that on top of, you know, the unexpected emotion that brings to the film. I mean, obviously centered around 
a younger woman target audience like this this film really kind of showcases uh just you know what it's without like fully uh elevating the words i'm about to say here but what it's like living as a woman um <laughs> and like the hardships that come with that and not my place but like it it's ridiculous conceived notions about being yeah. a woman it's it's ridiculous the amount of hatred that this film is getting um from men who think they no, have higher power you know and those those small penis men are just gonna have to keep being mad about things that are dumb and because they're never gonna change like the ben shapiros of the world or whatever mm -hmm. that are feeling attacked by the wokeness of this movie which doesn't make any sense that's not how that word can properly be used grammatically yeah, I, I mean this. This film was never made to intentionally to harm anyone, and the fact that it was also not made to impress the people that Ben Shapiro are like those. <laughs> this is not for you, sir. Don't watch it. He was probably a fan of the Flash, so I think we know <laughs> hey, what his problems are. We were fans of the Flash. We have that oh. on record. We have it on record. <laughs> so, I think you know Margot Robbie's front and center portrayal by was was fantastic. I mean. She she brought a lot to the table, and I thought it was the right character yeah. and performance to get. I it. mean, Ryan, I I know Ryan Gosling stole the show for a lot of people. I mean, he was amazing as Ken, and he fully went into character, which you know he has comedic timing and the ability to to make you laugh, and he doesn't get to do that too much. And when he does, it's it's a true talent to behold, and I I love seeing it. And their chemistry that these two have created is unmatched like it really was great and we get to see it in a oceans 11 prequel too so i mean i'm excited man, i'm excited bar i the whole thing with margot robbie i mean the the best part about her performance is she's not the funniest character she's not even the like most entertaining character but she is the ability for her to get you to emotionally invest into this main barbie and her story arc that is just like very mundane if there's no world altering situation going on uh they hardly i'm so glad they hardly spend any time in the real world they literally just go get america ferrera and then bring her back to barbie land because that whole production design the whole setup for that city was so perfect and in tune with what this movie was trying to be i mean then you have ryan gosling and yeah you're right he was the absolute steen stealer this movie could have been called Ken, and even though that's incredibly problematic, I would have been very much into watching this. Ryan Gosling needs to do more comedies. He needs to be in more rated R comedies. This isn't even rated R, but the the things they the lines they push with some of these jokes, specifically ones that are related to genitalia or lack thereof. They, I, I was mm -hmm. genuinely surprised to hear in like a Mattel approved Barbie movie. They're also very satirical towards their own company being run by like this buffoon boardroom of men run by Will Ferrell, who also scene stealer. Everything he does makes me laugh in this movie. Uh, just also Alan. Amazing. Weird Barbie. Amazing. All these characters I thought were absolute highlights of this movie. But, I mean, Ryan Gosling was just the most hysterical part of this movie. He definitely was in this, like, realization of this men's role of this world in this world and, like, fully realized, like, 
the theme that Greta was trying to pull out of this movie, which I thought she did really well. And I'll bring that up more later, but he's just so completely, he understood the assignment from day one. He knew what he was coming there to do to play this like weak Barbie obsessed version. Ken, whatever that's, it's not self-confident at all. And, needs i don't know it's everything he did in this movie was entertaining and i couldn't have been more happy with it i mean it, it he has a lot of moments where like the scenes are rewatchable i mean his his own melody of of matchbox 20's push his cover yeah. of yeah oh my god yeah. what a moment then for he, us in the theater Just his um he he very well my i know i uh he very well might you know win best song like he kidded an oscar for this i am ken like i'm ken and i'm just yeah he peaches he should go to peaches peaches is better than it's gonna be a battle yeah now we we've had years where performing at the oscars the best songs are are oh my god if jack black and ryan gosling are performing at the oscars are you fucking kidding me make it happen they, they both I swear to God, if it's some dumb credit song from Beyonce, I'll flip a shit. No one wants that. Everyone wants this. I I want to include because I mentioned this with Oppenheimer. I'm gonna I'll say it here with Barbie. I I think in terms of the the Oscars, like this has a pretty good chance, especially the fact that it's being such received well. The box office is. I mean, at the point of us talking right now, it's already at five hundred million dollars worldwide. That's insane. Um, But I, I could easily see this landing picture. Director, actress, supporting actor, song, production, costume, screenplay, hair, and makeup. I think all those fit the criteria as well, and I mean earned obviously gloriously. And it's it's just you know quite the achievement we got this weekend, where you know you have Barbenheimer fighting for the box office. Like how great of a story would it be come Oscar season? You know these two are are competing for for more gold and. I mean, it's very easy for the Golden Globes to split these, but I think going into the Oscar nights, it's going to be a very strong year because the films we still have yet to come out that are going to be, you know, well-received just because of the, yeah, just because of the, you know, the more powerful filmmakers we have attached to it and the stories and central ideas that are going to be uncovered and unlocked, to say the least. Like, Barbie really opened up the door for a lot of originality to be brought into theaters. And I think, you know, Greta Gerwig, I mean, I'm so happy that she's getting getting this success because she's been around for so long and has really not been able to get off the ground too much, even though like everything she does has still been, you know, critically acclaimed. It's now she's seeing the 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 other side of that where your film's actually making money. And it's it's exciting to see what she does. What she has playing next is is interesting. It's mm-hmm. the Narnicles reboot uh with Netflix. Chronicles mm-hmm. of Narnia. Nauticles uh, of Crarnia. <laughs> uh, with Netflix, so that will be interesting. But and she has no interest in doing a Barbie sequel right now, which yeah, I'm glad I was about to, to say. I don't think we they don't, need to. Don't at need all. to always. Yeah, we don't need to always rip. You know, rip the grapes and and get more of the wine out there. Right. Like this, I mean, she's she made a Barbie movie that is bright, bold, bubbly, bonkers. It's an absolute blast to just sit there and watch with your friends, all wearing pink. There, it's a perfect blend of bizarrely existential. And just laugh out loud, hilarious. And I really think that Greta was an absolute perfect pick for this, for her level of comedic, like, tone. I mean, her and Noah Baumbach wrote this script, and their comedic tone is there. They're, 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 te- oh, yeah, they're touching on, yeah. yep, they're touching on these subjects 
heavily that need to be talked about. I mean, I'm surprised they got away with as much as they did. They're basically roasting Barbie, Ken, Mattel, the patriarchy, Warner Brothers, everyone all in this movie. And this movie still got approved and made the way that it did in this campy. Like, it also, also, I'll say it's never preachy. I mean, well, maybe there's one or two scenes that seem a little preachy. But for the most part, it's able to like talk about all these different things without being obnoxious or heavy handed or feeling forced. But really, I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's sending a beautiful message, a universal message that and like that really anyone can relate to about about like feeling unaccepted in a way or just like at your like its emotional core is feeling loved whether you're loving yourself or, or really it's feeling loved by yourself yeah ex- accepting the image no matter yeah. what you, you you know all images are acceptable to say the least i mean i know they did a really great thing at you know bringing the people that hate barbie into the fold as well as people that love barbie into the fold and i think they brought the right message out and there's there's no other version of this i'm really excited with what we got and just you know Right time at the theaters. Like I love seeing it busy. I love seeing the audience that we're getting for this. I mean, this is, you know, very, very good to say the least. I mean, it is two of the opposite genres of filmmaking, but at the same time, both exceeding the expectations, I would say, and what we got and just the work is remarkable. And I the mean, people involved with it should pat themselves on the back. Yeah, I just never expected this movie to have like such a level of meta commentary on how messed up and convoluted women's perceived role in society is and uh, like how currently male dominant society is and how flawed a male dominant society is. All of this is there and presented in such a funny, hysterical, like horse filled way. It's just so and I mean, we haven't even talked about beaching off at all. Yeah, his job is beach. Yeah, like, dude, he he works at it, like you, how can you be so mad at this? Like the dude, movie is not so trying goofy. to take itself it's so silly. Yeah, when people are like, "How was it? Like, was it really good?" I'm like, "It was amazing," and they're like, "Really?" I'm like, "It's so silly, but it's amazing." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think people need to get the stick out of their ass, and also if you know you're going to be upset watching this, don't fucking watch it. Yeah, like, I hate ben people like Shapiro. that. Like, like the movie, if if the movie bothers you and you're questioning why it's being made, it's not for you. Yeah. So fuck off. Yeah. Like you have your own problems and your own stuff going on where like you can't enjoy any other movie. So you have to bash the one that is actually doing well and that other people are enjoying. Fuck off. Like who cares? And then you're going to complain that it's not good, but also not watch it. Then you have no right to say a fucking yeah. word. Yep, 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 like yep, those yep. haters out there, get the fuck off. Like <laughs> movies are not for you then. And just fucking leave. Like, it makes no fucking sense to hear all the the bashing about it and the destroying through, you know, socials that I'm unfortunately have gone down deep holes about and rabbit holes to say least. Like, it's it's unfortunate that this is the world we live in and, and this is our reality. But, like, some people go to the movies to escape. Let them escape and enjoy shit for once. Whoa. Like, why do you have to shit on their life because it's just not going any differently than yours? Like, I this is my annual rant of like, you know, let people enjoy fucking movies and you just fuck off. Just let them enjoy their movies. Leave like, them like, alone. You have no idea how exciting I am for next. <laughs> you know what? I ha- I am very excited for what we're about to watch next week. And that PMN. is my childhood. 
a nutshell. So tonight I got I got I got to start watching those old. I'm gonna watch all the theatrically released TMNTs. Careful with the recent live actions. There is yeah, I know. I know all about the recent live actions, my guy. They're they're worse than I thought. I'm not gonna lie. (laughs) But on that note, we will. Yeah. I, I think we I think we presented Barbieheimer yeah. the best way possible. Barbieheimer. Um, I I hope the folks out there who haven't seen this yet get to experience the, the pure gold that comes from it, because um, mm-hmm. it is a lovely time at the theaters. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, I mean, the amount of people I've gotten tickets for Barbie for this week alone. I I yeah I've I've had some <laughs> friends that I haven't even heard from in a couple. They're like, you know, hey, Barbie. While, and, and they're just like, yo, can I get some? They're like, hey, uh, hey, you remember me from high school? Do you still work at the movie theater? Any chance I could get two tickets to Barbie? And you're like, who are you? <laughs> he was like, I was your fifth grade math teacher. <laughs> oh, uh, well, my fifth grade teacher and, was- uh, Whatever. Let's talk about our recommendations because I got to go get my vehicle from the shop. <laughs> Don't forget your uh, My recommendation is simple. It is the best version of the Haunted Mansion ever put to, like, a film medium, and it's Muppets Haunted Mansion. Okay, uh, somehow <laughs> somehow there are now three versions of the Haunted Mansion in, like, film or short film form, and the Muppets still dominate always and forever. Go Gonzo. Okay, so have you have you seen The Revenant? Because I look in your nope. letterbox, and I... Okay, so Never. then you'll love this conversation. Oh, great. Um, I, I are you about I, to describe the entire plot of a movie I'm not, again? <laughs> Should do that, but I I recently so I I, I bought it on 4K because I I wanted to rewatch this like fully getting the cinematography and just the frozen nature of all that. But I I've kind of wondered like since this has come out like the negative reception it is it's growing on it because it's. People like it's too long. There's not much going on, and like Leo and these Oscars, the and it was just a, was, a, yeah, it was an Oscar bait performance. Like I, I find that to be you know this lack of preposterous. I mean, yeah, it's it's stupid. Like this movie is a it should be viewed more as a treasure because you know they're using filmmaking that hasn't been done in a long time or ever, which you know, is natural lighting, and it it was a box office darling, and going into the Oscars the night of the Oscars, like it was the front runner to win best picture. Like there was a lot of success with this film. And I feel like people are kind of forgetting about it. And, and I slowly rewatched it more so because of like the leading success of Oppenheimer and, and like this one man's path to destruction or just, you know, in terms of journey and, and achieving the goal. And like, that's kind of what we have here with like Leo and his presence of just wanting revenge. And like, when he gets it, is it really the outcome he was wanting? And I think we got, a great a great film and i recently heard like on a podcast like you know there's a lot of films that leo does that makes him such a great actor and there's not many actors of his caliber that can do those performances and make those films as rewarding and and in my thoughts i was thinking right off the bat matt damon brad pitt and christian bale like i i view those actors on the same level of of that and i just don't think they could have pulled it off as greatly as leo did and and i'm on the note where like yeah maybe this shouldn't have been the first film he won an oscar for because like Wolf of Wall Street was incredibly better and Aviator was amazing. But I still am glad like this is the film we got him for because it's still a magnificent to look at. Like it's hard to take away from the nature and the breathtaking scenes of just the frozen tundra. And we don't really get movies like that. Like it's it's awesome. And yeah, like that I rewatched that and I think I 
haven't seen that movie in nearly three years, so I need to kind of get back into maybe watching that once a year. So that that's my recommendation. If if you haven't seen Barbenheimer, check out The Revenant. If you haven't seen Barbenheimer, watch The Revenant. That's yep, perfect line to end oh. on. Uh, we will see you guys next week with whatever we get to watching. Uh, it'll probably be something turtle related, but we will see you guys then. Bye bye.